The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. course, we're going to elaborate and discuss the teachings of psychology, particularly in relation to the study of our perception. And in this uh, explication of lectures, we're going to talk in detail about the nature of our awareness, what constitutes self-observation, what constitutes what esoteric circles denominate consciousness as compared to what many other philosophical schools or or Western psychology denominates with that term. And the purpose of this lecture is to really examine how we perceive and what does it mean to genuinely perceive from a perspective that is situated in our divinity. What does it mean to be aware of divinity? What does it mean to really perceive? And the question, how do we perceive? How do we know what we know? And of course, this gets into the study, as I mentioned, Western philosophy, the relationship of uh, epistemology, the study of knowledge, and ontology, the study of being. And we're going to talk about both in detail, knowledge and being. What does it mean to know? What does it mean to be connected with God, Buddha, divinity, etc.? And uh, the methodology that we're going to explain, as mentioned by Samael and Dior, is uh, found hidden within this term, consciousness. So we're going to explore really what does it mean to be conscious in a spiritual sense, as opposed to just being physically awake. Now, uh, we know when we say that someone is conscious, it means usually the, we insinuate that it means that we are physically aware. We're in the vigil state. But we're going to talk about how consciousness is more than just physical perception, but a type of cognizance that is beyond thinking, that is beyond feeling, and is beyond instinct or impulse. And while the consciousness transcends these elements, being that which exists before these 
three elements. It pertains to qualities that have a type of conceptual understanding or thought, a pure sense of sentiment, as well as a will that is fully in harmony with the divine. So when we explain that consciousness is not merely just the separation from thought, feeling, and our physicality, it doesn't mean that the consciousness is a zombie-like state in which uh, there is no, not necessarily a type of feeling involved or a type of reasoning. But we want to emphasize that the reasoning and sentiment of the consciousness is something very dynamic and is beyond our current common terrestrial reasoning or uh, sentimentality like Hallmark cards or, or Christmas cards or uh, music of a very sentimental type. Because the soul really, uh, in its dynamism, in its, in its uh, development, is uh, embodied in the symphonies of Beethoven. So the power and emotion we find expressed in his works or in any great uh, compositions of classical music expresses the, the longing of the soul to unite with the divine. Or, uh, for example, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the, the choral symphony, the ode to joy is the expression of the consciousness in union with divinity and expresses a type of emotion that is superior than, say, the emotions of the relating to negativity, pessimism, or even experiences of emotional states that we might denominate as good. But consciousness is beyond that, and, but that doesn't mean that it lacks quality. Likewise, we see that the consciousness is beyond reasoning. And yet, uh, the consciousness has a type of conceptual understanding that is beyond uh, terrestrial thinking, thought. But we want to explain that uh, consciousness, first of all, is beyond the thinking center, the emotional center, and uh, the motor center. It is beyond and is the root of all the perceptions that we have that involve thinking, feeling, and acting. Consciousness of a spiritual type is the ability to perceive without conditions. We understand that uh, the mind, as we have, is a form of conditioning. The intellect has its limitations. It can store information, it can repeat facts. But it doesn't mean that the intellect in itself is a means of knowing God of knowing the divine. Because the perceptions or qualities we need to know divinity are beyond the limits of the intellect. And the great uh, philosopher from Konigsberg, his name was Immanuel Kant, he's famous in, his, in Western philosophy, he's, he emphasized that the intellect cannot know noumena, or the truth, the thing in itself, the reality. He emphasized that the intellect is merely a machine that can, that can provide a thesis or an antithesis. Theory, anti-theory, idea, any concept. And can argue and store information about both sides of an argument, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that the intellect knows the, what is real. Of course, many philosophers reject Immanuel Kant. And uh, Sam Island Dior mentions many times in his books that we should study uh, what this philosopher had to say because he 
he proved the limitations of the intellect. And that to say that I think, therefore I am, like Descartes, doesn't mean to be conscious. It just means to be thinking. And we're going to elaborate on this difference. You know, to think is not necessarily to be. And uh, consciousness grants us the realization that thoughts, intellect, reasoning cannot take us to divinity. It doesn't, it doesn't qualify as the state of awareness of being in the present moment. The intellect can conceptualize about past or present or future, always wandering and thinking about other things rather than what is on the, in front of us at the moment. And we're going to talk about the need for this awareness. But to explain what consciousness is, we talk about we place an image of a a Buddha or a master, a fully awakened being, because a Buddha means awakened one, to be aware. Coming from the Sanskrit bud, B-U-D-H, meaning cognizance, awareness. Buddha taught that the highest form of thought is no thought. But uh, this is a very subtle doctrine that he gave. Because consciousness can understand ideas, but doesn't mean that it is trapped within conceptualization, theories, beliefs, ideas, taking an idea and accepting it, or taking an idea and rejecting it. It's beyond the, uh, that's, uh, the limitations of the mind, intellect. Consciousness knows. Intuition is the capacity to know the truth about a given phenomena without having to intellectualize about it or place or project a concept on it. And this is the primary distinction between the quality of consciousness compared to the quality of uh, the intellect. Because usually people say, I am here, I am awake, I am conscious. They are thinking. But to think is not to be. To be is to be in a state of awareness that doesn't involve thought necessarily. We say that uh, an example we can give is observe the moments between thoughts. When a thought emerges, we are thinking in a given instant. And then in the next moment, another thought replaces it, usually of a different nature, different objective, such as I want to get a cup of coffee or I want to, uh, no, I'm, I think I'm going to ride my bike. And this interchange of thoughts, which are fluctuating and changing within ourselves. Awareness is, or the cognizance of the Buddha is to know precisely where everything comes from within our psyche. A Buddha is a being that has fully developed that potential that is beyond thought, that is beyond feeling, that is beyond impulse. And in the purpose of this lecture, we're going to talk about how consciousness is fed and strengthened by energy. If we have a difficulty in experiencing the consciousness that is unconditioned by filters, by thinking, by sentiment, by worries, by fears, by preoccupations, what can aid us is working with forces of a spiritual type which we contain within us which is why we include uh, this image of a Buddha surrounded by fire. Because from fire, from, the, from uh, energy comes light. And light is a form of energy. We say that light is a form of consciousness, to know, to see, 
it is direct knowing about the nature of a given phenomena in this moment, in every instant, without the need to conceptualize or label, but to know it, to see it. We can store information in our, uh, in our experience, in our consciousness, learn new things, relating, uh, learning about the laws of any cosmos, any nature of the universe, of divinity, which is a form of uh, knowing, but it's not intellectual. It is not the, the egotistical e uh, intellect that we have, but it is a form of superior knowledge, which Plato called noose. He said mind, but really noose is a very high level of objective awareness that establishes laws and understandings about the nature of a cosmos or universe or divinity within a different kind of mind, a new mind. And uh, as we were mentioning previously, uh, we have the story of Pinocchio, who's a wooden boy. He wants to become a real man. Or you could say if, uh, if Pinocchio was a woman, he wants to become a real, a real woman, meaning a, a being that fully assimilates the image or potentials or, or uh, principles of God inside to become real, to know divinity. That is a Buddha, to fully know that inside, in this moment. But for us, uh, we need to learn the method to know how to develop this consciousness, to be aware of what div our divinity inside. And uh, this is the meaning of the, the story of Pinocchio particularly relates to the gospels, how Jesus says, you don't put new, you don't put, uh, new wine in old wineskins, meaning a, a new type of knowledge in a mind that is old. Instead, he said, you need to change the wineskin, meaning the mind, the mentality that we have typically, where uh, a mind that if, presented with new ideas, we are constantly projecting our thoughts or concepts on any phenomena, any teaching that we read. And that's the problem with many spiritual students or spiritual teachers from any religion, when giving them the wine of uh, transcendental spirituality, of the method to know divinity. Usually people have this prejudice where they want to project their ideas, their concepts onto the knowledge or into religion or to any spiritual teaching. People being in love with their, their old ways rather than absorbing what is new. This is the warning that Jesus gave. We need to have a new wineskin, meaning a new mind. And that type of mind is a mind that doesn't get carried away with thinking, doesn't wander all the time, doesn't get stuck in preoccupations or memories or worries. But consciousness is a, new, a, a different type of mind, we could say. We say strictly in Gnostic terms that mind is intellect that uh, the consciousness is beyond that. But in Buddhist terms, as we're going to talk about, they use the term mind in a general sense. Sometimes they mean consciousness, the soul that is free of the ego, free of the intellect. And sometimes uh, they use the mind in terms of desire, ego. But uh, consciousness is uh, simply the ability to perceive, to know in a superior way. And the way that we help ourselves access that state is work with fire. So we see in this, these letters on the left, the uh, Sanskrit word Aum, which means God. So any Buddha is born from fire. So what is this fire we speak of? It's the energies that circulate throughout us moment by moment, such as our vital forces, which give us health, 
help with our bodily chemistry, metabolism, catabolism, digestion, vitality that we get in the morning in order to, after a, a night of rest, in order to live, work throughout the day. We also have emotional energy. We also have intellectual energy, mental energy. And these are forces that exist in us that we need to learn how to harness with the soul in order to awaken the soul. The soul is beyond the thinking process. That's the thing we have to experience. The soul is beyond emotional processes. Neither is it limited by sensation in the body, but is uh, beyond those factors, such as when we, we can see in ourselves, if we sit to really introspect in the meditation practice, seeing that thoughts come and go, they emerge, they sustain, they pass away. So what is, who is the one that is observing? Who is the one that's being observed? The Zen questions we need to ask ourselves to understand who's the one that perceives inside. Because in self-observation, as we explained, is not an intellectual exercise. It is not a matter of thinking, 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 but perceiving, becoming... Uh, observing what exists inside of us. This is the quality of a Buddha, to be awake. And this type of perception is a form of light. All religions talk about light. To know. The light of Christ, the light of the Buddha, the light of Allah, mentioned in different uh, traditions. Consciousness is a form of light. And uh, when we see, we know on a very basic level that when we have physical light, we, we see, we perceive. This is a form of consciousness. It is a form of consciousness to, to perceive physical phenomena, to go to work every day, to, to interact with people, to have our uh, obligations and to experience life as we do with physical sight, with our senses with the mind that we have. But what we need to experience for ourselves in a, in a very direct way is how this form of perception is limited. It isn't expansive. It, is, it isn't integral. It isn't total. There was a saying by uh, an occultist by the name of C. Uh, Leadbeater. He said, it is the gravest of mistakes to believe that the limit of our physical perception is the limit of all there is to perceive. And this emphasizes the fact that our physical senses can only tell us so much. And what we need to activate is a form of spiritual perception that is, that is uh, um, within this moment. To know uh, the limitations of the senses themselves. And this is a form of light. It is shocking. It is startling. It is to see, not merely physically, but with a new form of senses. And typically we know that we live in a world of thought, feeling, and sensation. This is a reality we can't deny. What is challenging is to, be, to recognize that the psychology that we have is capable to be modified. And we know in a basic psychological terms that there's different groups that teach, you know, you can change your personality or character. Uh, self-improvement, things of that nature, which really are very basic. But the kind of awareness that we seek to develop to change our way of thinking and feeling is a type of is a knowing, to know, to see. 
And that's what gives us genuine faith. Because our spirituality, our knowledge of the divine is contingent upon our experience. And it's not limited to uh, belief. We can think something is true all we want. We can really have a strong emotion that we feel that this is true. But if we haven't had the experience, we don't know. And then ignorance is a form of darkness. We say that uh, in this quote from Samuel and Lior, the distinction between objective awareness or consciousness and the, the state of our daily life. Consciousness is the light which the unconscious does not perceive. Now, we know from Jung, uh, Jungian psychology as well as Freud that there's an unconscious. This is something that we can verify through dreams where things happen that are out of our, beyond our control. This is, uh, this is what the Gospels or the religions call darkness. This is interesting because when we look at that psychological state, say in our dreams, bizarre dreams or uh, instinctual experiences we have when we are physically asleep or we're in the dream world, things that happen beyond our control that we perceive but we don't understand. That type of, uh, that darkness is a form of uh, perception. And this is a distinction we need to have. We talk about consciousness, we talk about unconsciousness. Consciousness is the light. It is awareness without filters. It is objective. There's nothing obstructing that perception. Just, so, just like when the sun is out, we're able to see clearly in landscape in which we exist or our surroundings. The problem is that uh, if we, such as we, if we examine our dreams, or the fact that we go to sleep at night and then eight hours pass, and we don't have any dreams, refers to our lack of awareness of a spiritual type. Because religions teach us that in, those, in that dream state, we can know more of what exists beyond the, our physical body. Unconsciousness has a very interesting name in, in uh, Greek. We call it ikasia. So we talk about different states of consciousness in this teaching. Ikasia means un unconsciousness, barbarity, cruelty. All the wars we see in this humanity are a result of ikasia. Ignorance, darkness. What's interesting is that ikasia in Greek means imagination, directly, to perceive. It's a form of perception, but it is darkness. It is ignorant. It is conditioned awareness conditioned consciousness, whereas the perception we want to develop is unconditioned, not filtered. We know that in a moment of anger, our entire sight, our focus is to harm or to speak ill will. And it's a form of conditioning. That's darkness. That's ignorance. That's the darkness that we're talking about. But it is a form of seeing, but like in the dark. That's the distinction. Darkness is Elements like anger, which in that, in that emotional state, one wants, to, one wants to harm the other person or to say something negative or sarcastic or critical. That is a form of perception, but it is conditioned. It is directed to cause harm. This is a form of ignorance. It is seeing, but in a subjective way, conditioned way. That's not the type of consciousness we, we want to develop. The consciousness we want to develop is free of that conditioning, such as anger in which 
by understanding anger in ourselves, by seeing it for what it is and not acting on it, we develop unconditioned consciousness, such as love, compassion, genuine concern for the other person. That's a form of knowing that is free of any filter. Because in a moment of fear, we only are consumed by that element. We feel fear about our economic situation, our job, or our family. That fear preoccupies all our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, and becomes our entire focus. It limits our awareness. We can't think of anything else but that element. That's a form of conditioning. It is darkness because it is not awareness that is free of that. We're conditioned by that element to suffer, to be in a state of suffering. And that's the darkness that the, the Gospels teach or speak about, and we're going to elaborate. Con consciousness, the, the consciousness that we want to access is beyond that. If we think about or remember experiences in our childhood especially, where we had less conditioning of mind, less conditioning of our awareness, where time stood still, time ceased to exist, but we were genuinely happy or uh, expressing love to our family members or friends or to our parents, especially when we're very young children, infants. Those are states of consciousness that are not contingent upon external factors, but simply in a state of being, we feel that peace and happiness. Consciousness is the connection with the divine. So any moment we've had in our life where we, we experienced compassion for another person or we risked to help another person selflessly. That is an expression of the consciousness. But the problem is usually we are conditioned. We think about ourselves too much. And uh, all religions teach that we need to separate from that, to free our soul from that. So consciousness is the light which the unconsciousness does not perceive. And this is very easy to verify when a moment of frustration, we want to act on anger. But then we work to really try work to restrain ourselves from saying that harmful thing or acting that way. So that's a struggle we have to face in order to overcome our own negativity. That consciousness wants to act; it just wants to hurt. It doesn't understand that. Well, it in, in a sense that anger understands that it wants to harm the other person, but we don't under, we don't objectively understand the, the consequences of that action. Because if we really saw that, you know, if we acted on that anger. We cause a lot of harm for perhaps our coworkers, our family, our friends. And that would have very disastrous effects. But that anger only wants to do what it wants, regardless of what we think. So that's the unconsciousness that is ignorance, darkness, which does not perceive the light, doesn't understand it. So a blind person does not perceive physical solar light either, but it does exist by itself. And this is going back to that quote by Leadbeater, that uh, even if a person doesn't, even if a person is physically blind, and cannot perceive physical light, that light exists. The same way, even if we can't perceive the divinity, divinity exists. And we need to understand the darkness that obscures that vision. We need to open ourselves so that the light of the consciousness can penetrate the terrible darkness of the me, myself, the I. Now we can better understand the meaning of John's words when he said in the gospel, and the light shineth in, the, in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5. So this is a struggle we face as we seek to understand what self-observation is. And again, this is not an intellectual concept or intellectual exercise, but a way of perceiving and a way of being that doesn't 
identify with negativity, preoccupation, worry, elements of that type. That's the darkness. Consciousness is a is a is freedom from suffering. And since anyone who enters this study really seeks to understand what causes the suffering inside. And we need to learn how to perceive that. In this image, we have a, a man bowing before a vision given in the book of Revelation in the Christian Bible. That's an image of uh, the Lord in white raiment illuminated with uh, seven candlesticks. And notice the image here of a man bowing in prostration. So the divine is light, love, purity, compassion. That is so that is limitless and extensive everywhere. That light is in every atom, is within our heart. And that light is a form of understanding, a way of being, a happy state that is transcends. Everything that uh, we can read about is something we need to know, which we can experience. We are that man bowing before that light. We are that shadow, we can say, of the Lord. We are part of the divine. We are part of the being. We are the soul. But unfortunately, through our mistakes, our, we conditioned our, our perception, our way of being. We created conditionings for our mind, conditionings of our consciousness, and created... Uh, Defects created the ego, created an aberration, a mistaken sense of self. Because ego means I, me, myself. And uh, we say that the ego is darkness. The ego is ignorance. Because when anger emerges, that ego, that defect, only wants to harm. That ego only sees what it wants. It doesn't want to see outside of its objective. Or it's better said, its subjectivity. These are elements that have a will of their own that we created. And the only way to see that is to separate from that, to extract our light and to really observe in ourselves who we are. To observe how we function and to not, uh, in terms of uh, who is the one thinking, feeling, acting. And again, this is not a conceptual exercise, but to see it. And this is a sense we have to really strive to develop by doing it. And uh, it's not an easy task. And when we learn to separate from uh, our own negativity to restrain our mind, to restrain our, our, our anger or fear or the conglomeration of defects that we study within Gnostic psychology, we learn to develop light little by little. And we learn to see that we are not this anger. We are not this fear. We are not pride. But we're something beyond that. And this struggle is often very confusing in the beginning, especially since we are so habituated to having negative emotions and that it's become a part of our culture. And this is something that pulls people and gets them absorbed in a way of life that doesn't question the status quo or where we're going in this type of behavior. But uh, we need to... Uh, have the courage, and it takes courage to see that we are not fear, we're not anger, we're not pride. We're something beyond that. But that takes a type of confrontation. And, that all, and that's how we develop reverence, like this image of a man bowing before 
the light of the divinity that's inside. This is just not, this is not a figure outside, but we all have a divine being who transcends fear, hatred, pain, suffering, and is our genuine state of happiness that is our birthright. Notice you have in this image a candelabra, or you could say a menorah, which is the Jewish um, uh, candles that they use for Hanukkah. Sometimes it has seven candles, sometimes nine. This is symbolic. Fire is light. From fire emerges light. And uh, the menorah is a representation. And if you look at the Hebrew letters, it teaches us many things about the nature of the Jewish religion, but also what we need to do to achieve religion, religari, to reunite with the divine. Mina means sex in Hebrew. Aor means light. So the compound word menorah literally means the light of sexuality, the light of, uh, of uh, the sexual energy. Seven candles relates to seven steps that we need to take called, called the path of initiation, which we're going to elaborate upon in other lectures. But we understand that fire cannot exist without fuel and light cannot exist without fire. So just as uh, a candle burns by having fuel or fire burns for having fuel. So likewise, the soul or the consciousness can only work, function with strength if it has energy, if it has fuel. So if we are struggling with having awakening in our dreams, or understanding what self-observation is, we can work with energy. Because the soul needs energy to work. Our consciousness needs a lot of power to be fortified and strengthened. And likewise, uh, this energy is found inside of us. As we've explained many times, the importance of working with the creative energies. Now to elaborate on a certain point about how we fuel our consciousness, it's interesting to look at Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew letters, particularly in relation to this image. The man, notice he looks dark. He's in shadow. He's obscured. That's us. In the beginning, we, we are in darkness. We don't know what the divine is. We struggle to pray. We seek to understand prayer. We seek to understand who we are amidst this confusion of uh, our daily life and our internal states as we try to understand and observe ourselves. We are a shadow of the divine. We belong to the divinity, but we are the shadow. We are not the Lord. The being is uh, beyond that. But if we work, we purify ourselves, we can unite our light with his light. But always we have to remember that we are just the soul, the shadow of the Lord. The Hebrew word for shadow is a cell. T-S-E-L. So the Hebrew letters, Sadi and Lamed. There are no uh, vowels in Hebrew. We only have the consonants. For the language. So cell means shadow. And what's interesting is that in order to spell the word image, or you could say light, or better said image is a salim. Same word as cell, but you get M at the end. So it's you can spell it like T-S-E-L or T-S-A-L-E-M. So Tsari Lamed Mem. So you have the letter M at the end of, of cell, of shadow, and you spell image. 
So we know from the Bible that uh, Adam was made into the image and likeness of his creator. But people think, because people are superficial, we think, we, most people think that, God, that our image is physical. This is who we are. And therefore, God must be some guy with a beard in the clouds. And um, a lot of uh, controversy has resulted from that type of fanaticism. The image that we're talking about is psychological. A way of being, a way of seeing, a way of knowing. That is, transcends our common experience. Transcends uh, negative states. And so, what's interesting is that when you add M, the add and the word cell or shadow, you get solemn, it means image, the image of God. And the letter M is, uh, is a special, is a very special letter in Hebrew because uh, we get words like ma'im or water. Mem means water, literally in Hebrew. We know that from our water of our body, the seminal fluid or the sexual energy is fire. Like the word menorah. And letter M is very has a sexual connotation, relates to sexuality or the sexual organs. So the light of divinity emerges from that those waters when we work with that energy, whether through mantra, and the letter and the word mantra has the letter M in it, is how we work with energy, how we give our soul light. And so uh, that energy can, will aid us in opening the doors of our understanding and helping us to cease being shadows. So the shadow becomes the image of God when we add M to it, Salem. So that's how we develop the spiritual image of divinity inside by working with those forces. That's how we generate light. So that's why uh, to aid in self-observation, to really aid us in being aware, we work every day with mantra or exercises like pranayama, breath work with energy, runes, the sacred rites of rejuvenation, which we've done at the beach previously. Mantra, prayer, sacred rites, runes, pranayama, those exercises give us force so that we can separate from our negativity. So if we feel that we're lacking understanding in our observation or awareness throughout the day, Typically, it means that we need to work more with the energy so that we have light. That energy gives us light. That water in our body, our, our spiritual forces, our sexual forces, the psychological energies are nourished by working with uh, the fire in our body. Because that fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire of sexuality, gives us life. It can give life physically, but also gives life spiritually. The light will aid us as we uh, seek to know ourselves. In this next image, we have a Buddha, the Buddha in his saffron robe meditating beneath the Bodhi tree. Now, what's important about this image is that uh, Bodhi in uh, Sanskrit means light. And so the Buddha attained his realization of his true uh, self, his inner God, his inner spirit or divinity by working with light, Bodhi. Or Bodhi could also, uh, as in the prayer, uh, Klim Krishnaya, Govindaya, Gobijana, Balabaya, Swaha, or uh, Agate, Gate, Paragate, Parasamgate, Bodhi, Swaha. Means uh, gone, gone, far beyond to the other shore, light, Bodhi, Swaha, hallelujah. So uh, that light 
that tree that gives us light is uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we, uh, Samayan Vyar explained many times that that tree is uh, a symbol for uh, creative forces. And uh, the thing is that with that energy of the tree of knowledge, which is uh, the creative energies, the creative uh, forces in our body, is how we attain illumination. So Bodhi, knowledge, or you could say uh, light, or you could say knowledge, jnana, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil is what uh, those energies in our waters is what gives us uh, understanding. So he's also wearing a saffron robe because uh, with that, is this, that, that, that color is a representation of the mind. The color relating to the, the mind or the mental body, we can say, is uh, yellow. The color uh, sim- signifies knowledge, wisdom, understanding, like the yellow brick road that Dorothy and uh, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and all them take to go to Oz, this Emerald City. It's a symbol, it's a Gnostic symbol, because the yellow brick road is the path of knowledge, self-knowledge, understanding. Dorothy is the soul who is accompanied by Toto, the, her dog, meaning the dog is a symbol of Cerberus in Greek mythology, the, the animal that was in uh, Hades that Hercules had to take out of, uh, out of the abyss to lead him up to the highest regions of uh, heaven. Is a symbol of uh, the sexual power. The dog is the instinct, sexual instinct that we need to take on that golden brick road to take us to the, the Wizard of Oz. The Emerald City is uh, the is a superior worlds, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the wizard is our being, our divinity, who can give us a new mind, give the scarecrow a new mind, which is what we need, a new way of knowing, a new way of uh, understanding. Have a the scarecrow says, "I need a new brain," because uh, he needs a new mind to change. You know, to have you know to pour new wine and new wineskins, get rid of the old uh, way of thinking, intellectualizing, debating. Arguing, theorizing. And then Tin Man needs a new heart, meaning we have, need a new way of feeling to create a, 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 an emotional center that's going to process the qualities of the divine. And then uh, we have uh, the cowardly lion who needs a new will, needs courage, a new way of acting. So that symbolizes the three brains in us, but also you know the bodies of the being, which we're going to talk about. In other, in other lectures, but Dorothy is us. We're on that. We're seeking to know divinity. We're on that. We're traveling the yellow brick road that's very narrow. And what is the blue? Uh, what is it? The fairy, the, the the good witch of the, I believe, is the east. Says, stay on the road. Don't leave it. That that uh, good witch is our divine mother. It teaches us we need to stay on the path of knowledge to go back to Oz, so that we can know divinity. And Oz in Hebrew is Otz which is where we get the word Ot Chaim, tree of life. Ot means tree. So notice Buddha is meditating underneath the tree of knowledge. Ot Hadat, the tree of knowledge. And that tree uh, is uh, the land of Oz, Ot. So the magician of the tree. So basically that story is teaching us about the magician of the tree, the tree of knowledge, the tree of uh, good and evil, and the tree of life. 
because the divinity inside us gives us life. So we need to develop that light to know ourselves directly. And so uh, by developing that knowledge from directing that light inside, we uh, develop genuine peace or develop our Buddha nature. And a Buddha, and Buddha nature is soul, consciousness. That's the Buddhist term for the soul. And uh, as we say in this quote, just as the fire is the direct cause for cooking, so knowledge and any other form of discipline is the direct cause of liberation. For liberation cannot be attained without knowledge. So this, this knowledge we're talking about isn't uh, book knowledge or lecture knowledge, scriptural knowledge, but to know, to perceive. By developing that light, we direct it inside and we, we gain freedom, liberation by not acting on our ego. So in a moment of anger, if anger emerges, say with our partner, frustration, we see that element arise in our, in our emotional center and, give, and projecting negative thoughts, wanting to say something hurtful or, or critical. If in that moment we see that impulse as it is, we separate from it, we don't act on it. We experience liberation to a degree. Usually people hear the term liberation and they think uh, like uh, one country being freed from another in political terms. But liberation is a psychological state when we cease to be conditioned by our subjective mind, our negative nature. Instead, we separate from anger and we express love and compassion towards our partner. That's a form of liberation. And that form of understanding affects others, even if they may not see it or observe it. So liberation is directly attained by uh, knowing. That light is knowledge. Again, the knowledge we're talking about now is not intellectual, not theoretical, but to know, to perceive. The word knowledge, gnosis, has the root word from the Sanskrit, nya, J-N-A, which is where we get the word jnana, meaning knowledge. And, uh, or the Greek, gnosis, G-N, which you pronounce with an N, is, uh, comes from also the root, relates to the Sanskrit, nya, or pranya, to know, to have direct insight into any phenomenon. So that knowledge is a superior type of knowledge that we need. We see that we're not this anger and that we don't have to live with it and that we don't have to make others suffer or make ourselves suffer as a result. Because the Buddha taught that when if we act on anger, it's like taking a hot coal in one's hand and then trying to throw it at the other person. Meanwhile, we get burned. And the moment anger destroys the cells in the body, etc. Literally causes hemorrhages, many problems of a physical type, but uh, psychologically, anger is destructive. So when we separate from those elements, we we gain self-knowledge, knowledge of div divine self, divinity. Now, to emphasize the points we made, we have this quote from Atman Bodha, it's a uh, Sanskrit scripture, in which uh, it talks about how we need to cease acting in subjective ways, acting from our from our negative states. But to transcend that, we develop genuine perception of uh, uh, who we are in relation to our divinity and separating from the negativity. Action cannot destroy ignorance, for it is not in conflict with or opposed to ignorance. Meaning if uh, we may want to act, but the question is, who is the one that wants to act? 
or pride or fear, hatred. His action is a, is a cause and effect. Our internal states cause uh, ex- have external repercussions. And ignorance is to not understand the consequences of our actions when we act in uh, mistaken ways. So the knowledge we need is uh, to transcend that. Knowledge destroys ignorance as light destroys deep darkness. So, uh, again, proper action is to act from consciousness, act with love, patience, forbearance, fidelity, peace. Whereas the actions we need to overcome, uh, we just cease acting on our ego, our negative elements. Because as the Buddha taught, we become what we think. If we think evil, if we speak evil, if we have sentiments of harm, negativity, that uh, becomes our reality. If we give in to those, the egotistical states of our psyche, which produce suffering and pain, not only for ourselves, but for others. If we act on that, if we identify with that, if we make our identity one with that, then we suffer, we enter into confusion. Whereas if we learn to separate from that and act and modify our internal states to uh, act from the light and understanding of our divinity, we produce happiness. And the Buddha taught this doctrine in his Dhammapada, preceded by mind or phenomena, led by mind, formed by mind. And again, when they say mind, we can say consciousness. The Buddhist term, when they say mind, uh, a lot of it is a bad translation because we could say, in some cases, consciousness, in some cases, ego. But here we're talking about the consciousness, preceded by consciousness, mind, or phenomena, led by mind, consciousness, formed by consciousness. If with consciousness polluted, one speaks or acts, then pain follows, as a wheel follows the draft ox's foot. Meaning of our consciousness is conditioned by ego. Because the ego is a shell that traps light. We, we suffer and then we others suffer. We, cre- we create problems. Like, uh, and basically if we act on those internal states, then uh, pain follows like a, like a wagon attached to us, like an animal's cart, like an ox's cart. Preceded by mind or phenomena, led by mind, formed by mind. If with mind pure one speaks or acts, or with, one, with, with unconditioned consciousness, pure and uh, clean, chaste, divine. If one speaks and acts from this state, then ease follows as an ever-present shadow. So Samuel Vior mentions in Revolutionary Psychology that we need to match internal states with external events. And that the one who knows how to match the appropriate internal state with the external event marches on the path of success. Because we know from experience that at such as a wedding party, some people uh, having waited for that coming day don't necessarily have the internal state to match the, the happiness of that event. Some people are getting drunk or sad or depressed, stuck in their own world, their own negativity. Or uh, some event could occur which is very tragic and painful, and yet uh, by uh, developing serenity and peace of mind, 
one does not identify with any chaos or war outside. This indicates that happiness is an internal state. And that uh, if we act from a sense of peace and connection with our divinity, we won't uh, suffer. Nor will we uh, contribute to any suffering in others. So this relates to the level of being. If we are pure in mind, we produce happiness. We relate to others in a superior way and create much more harmonious circumstances for ourselves. If we act from our negativity, then we produce chaos. This is the law of cause and effect. In this image, we have uh, Jesus wearing the crown of thorns, illuminated by light, halo of, uh, of uh, luminosity. We're going to explain a quote that he gave in uh, the Gospels, which is beautifully summarizes this entire teaching of uh, awareness. The translation that is given from the Greek is poor in the King James Bible and other modern translations. And we look at the Greek to explain some terms that he gave that uh, could be elaborated upon to clarify what we're discussing, not only in Christian terms, but Buddhist. So there's a very famous saying about the nature of awareness that Jesus gave. The eye is the illumination of the soma. He says the eye is the illumination of the body. Soma in Greek can mean body. It also can mean self or soul. But the translation typically says the eye is the illumination of the body. If thine eye be singular, thy whole self will be full of light. Now, uh, the word they use for singular, really is a bad translation. If the translation says, if you have one eye and if it's clear, then your whole body will be full of light. But this is, is a wrong translation. The word singular is from the aplos, aplos, which means clear, simple, uncomplicated, pure. Meaning, if your eye, if your spiritual perception is pure, unconditioned, clear, simple, not complicated, your whole self will be full of light. But the translation says, if your eye be singular, your whole body will be full of light. And people literally think your physical eyes, but no, it means it's the spiritual perception we're talking about. Your whole self will be full of light if our awareness is simple, unconditioned, clear, pure, chaste, unobscured by the ego. Yet if thine eye be impure, ponieros, thy whole self or soma shall be full of darkness. Therefore, if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So this sounds ironic that if if one is full of darkness, if one's light is darkness, the one is full of great darkness. It seems contradictory. But going back to our original point about how the subjective state of humanity known as ikasia, ignorance, unconsciousness, barbarity, cruelty, these states have a form of a uh, are a form of perception, but subjective. As we said, ikasa means imagination. To see, to perceive. So people who commit murder and violence, they see what they're doing and they do it. They act on it. They have awareness of what they do. But they don't understand that their acts are corrupt. Or if one understands, one is unable to separate from that. That's a form of ignorance. 
not seeing the causes that such actions have or the, uh, the wars that we see in different parts of the world. That, barbar that barbarism is a state of ignorance, ikasia. People see what they do, they, they commit violence, but they don't genuinely perceive in that instant how they're causing harm. Or uh, if they identify with their state, they don't uh, control it or separate from that. So they see what they're doing, but that is ignorance, that's darkness. So Jesus was saying that if, you're, if your eye is impure, meaning your, your sense of being, or if your consciousness is conditioned by the ego, then how great is that darkness? You see and have vigil and physical sight and then li living in this world and uh, working in this society. But if our internal states are corrupted, even if we are physically awake, that light in us is darkness, is ignorance. We need to free that light from the ego, that energy from the ego, so that our free consciousness, our soul, our Buddha nature, can uh, take control over our mind, our heart, our body. So that the soul is acting upon the impulses of God. And the way that we do it is through will. This image of Jesus wearing a crown of thorns means he's, he's has Christ's will. His will is fully united with the divine. But of course, to the ego, the egotistical mind that we have, this is painful. This is why the thorns lacerate the flesh and cause pain uh, as Jesus represented with his physical life. And uh, that crown of thorns represents the type of will we need because the mind that we have objects, fights, doesn't want to develop or follow this teaching that provo is pre uh, presents obstacles. And the work that we do to uh, unite our will with the divine is to not act on our negativity, our negative thoughts, impulses, and that type of will is like a wearing thorns, and it's painful. And uh, this is why Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Father, be, be possible, let, let this cup of bitterness pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. As also we say in the Lord's Prayer, let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But to do that, we have to face that pain, that contradiction we have inside where we want to separate from all that negativity and garbage, but that element is strong in us and fights back. And so... We have to work with the light and to have faith in the light that we're going to overcome this obstacle inside. And so it's painful. It's a crown of thorns we have to wear. And this is a symbol of Christ's will. The will of Christ inside of us, the soul united with the divine that does the will of the Father only and not the intellect. So the intellect suffers and wants to argue and fight back, but we have to wear that crown of thorns and have faith and follow our, the, the divinity. But it's a painful process. And Jesus represented with his physical life, amazingly, uh, the path of we have to take. So he's symbolizing his life what that we need to do. And really, it's, it's a, as a master who embodied the highest principles that we know of, his attainment was exceptional because uh, he literally went through that drama physically to teach us a symbol and to be wearing that crown of thorns is to face that pain that the mind has towards these studies. And it wants to, the mind wants to continue thinking evil and harm and negativity, it's con this confusion, this, this hatred, this pride. But that thorns we have to wear to dominate our mind as Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem.
that mind is, again, it's another symbol for the same thing. The mind is a donkey. We have to, Christ has to ride it into Jerusalem, into the heavenly city of Oz. But, uh, of course, the intellect is an obstacle. So, uh, again, it emphasizes in the book of Luke, Take heed, therefore, that the light which in the, that is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, or soma, yourself, is full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. This is the symbol of the menorah. We develop a light inside by transforming our mind, by getting rid of all the garbage that we have inside. And this is difficult to state, but it's a fact. Represented by Halloween and the pumpkin gourd. Traditionally, we take a pumpkin, and the gourd is a symbol of the mind, the intellect. We scoop out all the gook of filth in order to decorate it in order to put a candle inside. That's a beautiful symbol for what we need to do. Halloween, hallow eve, this hallow evening. This mind is, we have is full of garbage, filth. We have to carve it out, clean it out, put a candle. That light is the light of our uh, spirit to purify the mind. And we do that by wearing that crown of thorns, by following the path that Jesus took inside. So uh, this work itself is about uh, being in the moment. And when we change our internal states, we change our level of being. Simply because our internal states attract our external circumstances. So if we're full of ignorance and elements which, if our, if our external life has problems, because in psychologically there's elements inside that are producing that problem. Or if we have problems with coworkers or friends or family or spouse, the, the problem is not them, but us. Because while we may have disagreements with others. We have to understand that certain psychological elements inside attract circumstances, like a magnet. Some people call this a law of attraction. What we are inside attracts our life. People who are drunkards or alcoholics, they go to bars, they attract that lifestyle. Likewise, the lustful attract orgies or uh, businessmen attract other businessmen, teachers, other teachers, uh, coworkers, you know, certain people in certain businesses are idiosyncrasies, they, their internal nature attracts their life. So wherever our circumstances are, if we develop understanding and compassion, we learn to associate with others in a superior way and we attract better circumstances. So in this image, we have the line of being and the line of life, as we've emphasized many times. The line of life is, again, relating to our past, our birth. The line of life progresses to the future towards our death. So we have marriage, family, we have adolescence, uh, our youth, adolescence, maturity, marriage, old age, death, and the line of life. That relates to time, the horizontal beam. But the, the line we wish to travel is in this moment, intersecting with the line of being. And uh, to be is to have light, to have knowledge, to see. To know that no matter what our physical circumstances are, we in turn uh, don't identify with any problems we have external, inside, but to be present and to be aware of divinity who is eternal. Because problems come and go. There's problems that have no solutions disappear. Problems would have solutions get solved. So why identify with all the external circumstances of life which are constantly changing? Whether groceries or family or friends or 
or business or work. These things have a beginning and an end. But the being has no beginning and no end. Is beyond that. Is eternal. That's the line of being. But to know that, we have to learn to climb that ladder like Jacob did or Jacob's vision in the Bible. We saw the angels ascending and descending because certain beings ascend towards the divine and some fall. This is represented in different cosmologies. But we want to ascend because we are here physically. We're in, we could say, in states of suffering. Now we want to go up to return, to not go down, but to overcome our negative psychological states represented by the inferior two quadrants of this uh, graph. The superior state of being pertain to the, the heavens. So we call heaven a superior state of being. Whereas hell is our ego, ignorance, to be afflicted with these elements. And so we attract our way of life in accordance with our level of being. Nobody can deny the fact that there are different social levels. There are church-going people, people in brothels, farmers, businessmen, etc. In a like manner, there are different levels of being. Whatever we are internally, munificent or mean, generous or miserly, violent or peaceful, chaste or lustful, attracts the various circumstances of life. So, mind precedes phenomena. We become what we think. And also, uh, as John Milton said in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place. You can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. So, we look at humanity. People make a heaven out of hell. They enjoy drugs, alcohol, fornication, destructive habits, violence, war. And then when you teach them how to change, they make a hell of heaven. They look at this and they run away because many people don't want to confront the ego. They don't want to wear that crown of thorns that is painful to bear, but it is the way, the truth and the life, that confrontation we need to make so that we change our level of being and transcend suffering. So this is the drama that... Uh, William Shakespeare depicted in Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether to snowball the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to bear arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So to be or not to be, to develop the being inside or not to develop the being. Really, we're stuck in this crossroad. That is the question. We do that moment by moment. To be or not to be, to remember, remember, be aware. Not identify with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Our ego is that on a bet, it's like being on a battlefield with, uh, as represented in the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism, where Arjuna, the warrior, talks to Krishna or Christ in order to wage war against uh, his uh, family members. It's a struggle we all face when we confront our mind. We see we have a lot of elements inside that are contrary to this teaching and fight resist and combat but Christ is the one or Krishna is the one who consoles Arjuna and says you must have faith in me because I will take you through this battlefield and I'll get you to the end and the Lord is like that whereas uh, those family members are all the egos that we have inside that don't want to die all the things that we're familiar with family we symbolize as brothers and sisters uncles family members those are things that are close to us that we used to cherish. And now we, Krishna says, Christ says, that has to die. All that has to be eliminated in order for you to be. To be united with the being, you have to remove what's impure. But our problem is that 
our mind has many elements that we used to identify with as who we were and are impure. But then when we, as we separate from that, develop light, and we see that we are not those elements, it's painful because we see that we created certain defects that obstruct us from knowing divinity and which fight us and resist us. But the Lord says, have faith. Krishna says, have faith in me in order to, uh, in order to develop the being. Because Krishna is the being, the Lord, the divine. And Hamlet in Shakespeare was soliloquizing, uh, performing a soliloquy where he's debating in his mind what he needs to do. To be or not to be, that is the question. Are we going to, am I going to really fulfill my divine purpose and unite with my being? Or am I not going to be? Or am I going to uh, be cast aside? And my, is my ego going to take over? So the slings and arrows of our rage, is it, is it nobler to suffer and to just sit passively and let life devour us? Or take arms against the sea of troubles and by developing our consciousness, end them. Those problems and conflicts are inside. Of course, the path of being, the level of being, we, trans, we go higher and higher as we work and eliminate ego. Now, uh, to elaborate on this point, we have a quote given by uh, Al-Kushari in a, in a very famous Sufi scripture called Al-Risala, which simply translates as principles of Sufism. And uh, Sufism is uh, the mystical tradition of Islam. And I want to elaborate on some points given by, that we explain in terms of uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which are in line with Islam. Now, people hear the, about Islam, and today the tradition has degenerated, lost its purpose. But if we look at its heart and the original scriptures and analyze it in light of Gnosis, we see that it's a beautiful teaching for the soul, not a fanatical sect to believe in. So in this image, we have Prophet Muhammad illuminated by fire. Notice here his, this image. He's got a veil covering his, his face. And in Islam, the tradition is that it's disrespectful to portray the prophets with their faces. They can be shown in art, but veiled. That veil represents the veil of uh, ignorance. If we want to know the divine, we have to tear that veil. It's inside. So that image, so the in the Middle East, that custom of women wearing the veil, the burqa, was a symbol at first to teach that point. Uh, if we want to know the Divine Mother, we have to uh, become married with the Divine. That's why women would wear that hijab or burqa as a form of modesty. But today, that, that custom has lost its purpose. A uh, long time ago, that, that symbol has, has not been understood. Some people call it the veil of Isis. That if we tear that veil of ignorance, we know divinity face to face. But we have to be pure. We have to be married, we could say, to the Divine. So Muhammad is surrounded by fire, meaning that he's, he was a prophet that worked with that energy. And um, you see many uh, of his disciples surrounding him. One thing, uh, he gave a beautiful teaching in relation to uh, this understanding about light, consciousness, and the path that we need to take. So Abu Hussein, Hussein Ali, uh, Ibn Ahmad Ibn Abdan reported that Abu Sayyid al-Kudri said that a man went to the Prophet Muhammad and said, O Prophet of God, advise me. The Prophet Muhammad said, Be wary of God, for in it is gathered all good. This is from Surah 3, verse 102 of the Quran. Now, to be wary of God is to fear God. 
And the, the, Christ, the, the Jewish Bible says the beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord. The Hebrew word is pechad, which means fear, reverence, or awe. Not egotistical fear, but respect. And uh, we respect divinity by fearing the loss of our energy, whether intellectual, emotional, or sexual. To be wary of God is when uh, practicing alchemy, to not lose that force. That is fear of God. And by conserving that energy, by having that reverence, that respect, we uh, come to know divinity. Take upon yourself war for God's sake, for it is the monasticism of the Muslim. Now, this is a very uh, 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 strong statement because people usually depict war or jihad as pertaining to the Muslim sects in the Middle East that are causing a lot of violence physically. But jihad at a different meaning in the time of Prophet Muhammad. He talked, jihad literally mean, comes from the Arabic mujahida, which means striving, to strive, to make effort. And he talked about two forms of jihad, jihad al-Akbar, the greater holy war, and then jihad al-Azgar, the lesser holy war. Uh, after defending themselves from certain individuals that were trying to blot out the teaching of the prophet who were physically trying to kill him, after a battle, Muhammad came with his companions and said, we are leaving the lesser holy war to go to the greater holy war. And uh, the companion said, oh, what, oh, Muhammad, is uh, these, the difference of these two holy wars? And Muhammad said, the greater holy war, or he said, the lesser holy war is against others to defend yourself from physical harm. Whereas the greater holy war is war against your desires, war against your ego. That's the meaning of striving fight against all that evil we have inside, the negativity, like Krishna and Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. So that's striving, to strive, to wage war for God is inside, not outside. It doesn't mean killing someone who isn't Muslim. It means developing compassion. That's how we, you know, the way that we wage war against people who are against us is by teaching the truth, by being compassionate, by being understanding. And if someone tries to hurt us physically, we defend ourselves. Obvious, but uh, the whole greater holy war is when we don't give in to our ego. We strive to to fulfill the dictates of our divinity. That's the monasticism of a Muslim, and a Muslim really mean you know really uh, there are many Muslims in the world today, but to be a real Muslim or to be a real Jew, a real Buddhist, a real Christian, is to have God fully incarnated. A Muslim is someone who submits to God and. Uh, the way that we submit to our divinity is by being chased, by uh, purifying our mind, by meditating, by transmuting our energies, and to bear witness of the divine. Because uh, what is it, the, the proclamation of faith in Islam? I believe in God and Muhammad is his prophet. Or they say, La ilaha Allah Allah, Muhammadun Rasul Allah. And in the physical tradition of Islam, they believe that's enough. That, okay, one is Muslim by just saying that, raising that, like, the Christians who say, I believe in Jesus, I am saved. And uh, that's ludicrous because to bear witness of the divine is to see the divine, to know divinity directly. That's what it means to be Muslim, to have that experience in, in meditation or out of the body, in the internal worlds. We see our divinity face to face and then we worship our divinity. That's uh, someone who really submits to God. Or someone who is really Christian or Buddhist or Muslim. 
not by just saying I believe in Muhammad. And, oh, that's the sad truth of the tradition. Many religions used to teach this. All religions used to teach this uh, science, but they lost sight of it, making it a matter of belief. And also, uh, Muhammad said, "Take upon yourself the remembrance of God, for it is a light for you." So how do we remember God? We observe our mind. That's how we develop light. Like in the pumpkin gourd, the candle in the, for Halloween, we develop that light in our mind. We wage war against our ego by defending our heart, by strengthening our, our love for humanity and our, and our being and for our loved ones. And then fear of God is by restraining the energies of sex. So you have the, in Muhammad's teaching, you have the reference to the three brains. Light in the intellectual center. Mindfulness, war against the ego by defending our heart, and then fear of God by restraining the sexual power and not using it for wrong purposes. So you can see beautifully that you know Islam has that teaching, but they lost sight of that a long time ago. The religion lost its meaning, and just sadly we have those uh, political problems related to that tradition today. In this image we have a Sufi or a mystic, a mystic of Islam with a rosary, breed, pray, rosary beads praying, performing japa. Japa is mantra recitation, which yogis or Sufis or any Christian would take a bead, perform a prayer in their mind or mantra in their mind with one bead at a time, reciting with every bead that they pass to their fingers. Likewise, here's an image, uh, uh, I believe a couple of verses in the Quran on uh, a cloth in which he's studying the sacred teachings, the religious writing, which means that for us, we need to uh, study and practice in harmony. Remember God by mantralizing, by praying, even silently in the mind when we're doing our daily activities, and to dedicate some time to the study of Scripture. We find that uh, the Sufi is uh, in, in prayer, worship, and it's important to remove from ourselves the concept that worship has to do with going to a mosque or a synagogue or a church. Those are important places for people to develop their devotion. But the best prayer is by remembering our being, by being aware. It's a form of prayer. And uh, when we have more light inside as we begin to see more and more our internal worlds, our thoughts, our feelings, our experience. We learn to pray very deeply in those states of observation. We have to observe our mind, our heart, our body, and to remember God, to feel that connection with our divinity. And that's a qualitative experience we have to work with. That's light inside. So the best act of worship is watchfulness of the moments. That is that the servant not look beyond his limit not contemplate anything other than his Lord and not associate with anything other than his present moment. Meaning, don't think of the future, don't think of the past. Don't worry, just be, be present. Be aware of the, your, your experience here and now. Because God is with us in this instant. And uh, to be aware of that is to become a Buddha. So what is our moral level? What is our, or better said, what is our level of being? This is the question in terms of developing consciousness, developing understanding. In this image, we have uh, the prodigal son returning to his father, as mentioned in the Gospels. 
So in the Bible, it mentions the story how the kingdom of heaven is like the prodigal son, in which this son received an inheritance from his father, money, wealth, fortune, and he left home, left his family to spend his money on women and gambling and drugs and fornication and alcohol. He eventually saw that his ways were mistaken. He returned back to his father. And his father was so happy to see his son lost from rising, coming, supposedly coming from the dead, appearing once again, that he, he established a great party, a celebration. And Jesus emphasized that there is more joy for a sinner who repents than a thousand righteous ones who have no need for repentance. Because we see that in this, the prodigal son realized that he made mistakes and that he um, genuinely had repentance and wanted to return to God. The, product, the father is the being, the spirit, the divine. We are the prodigal son, which in these studies, as we develop, begin to see that uh, we have a lot of darkness in our mind, we realize that we want to return to the divine. Therefore, divinity welcomes us. And... Um, with great festivity, something we can experience in the internal worlds. So our level of being attracts our life. If we uh, are negative, we attract negativity. If we are longing for God, we will uh, aspire and we aspire to the divine. We will experience the divine. But some island Vero mentions the following in uh, revolutionary psychology, in terms of the, inter- the interdependence of all things. The repetition of all our miseries, scenes, misfortunes, and mishaps will last as long as our level of being does not radically change. All things, all circumstances that occur outside of ourselves on the stage of this world are exclusively the reflection of what we carry within. With good reason, then, we can solemnly declare that the exterior is the reflection of the interior. When someone changes internally and that that change is radical, then circumstances, life, and the external also change. So it's inevitable that if we practice and we are longing for God, we will experience the, the being. But uh, in order for that to happen, we have to change our level of being. If we don't, we increase our suffering. In this image, we have a very uh, provocative image of, uh, given by we have Hemling, uh, Memling, excuse me, the medieval artist depicting uh, hell. So as we mentioned, hell is not necessarily a physical place or an exterior place, but an internal state. And the image the, of fire and brimstone and demons and and uh, demons and all these figures is a symbol. Those demons are our own egos. Anger is a demon. Lust is a demon that makes us suffer, makes the soul suffer. Those fire is the passion. Fire that's not tempered by the spirit meaning lust, sexual desire that is never satiated. Because desire, our ego, once fed, wants more. It never stops desiring. It never stops wanting. Therefore, the problem is to stop feeding desire, ego. Because desire and ego is the same term. The ego is a desire, a, a, a wanting, a will that is separate from God. That makes us burn either with greed or fear or passion. And we need to extract that fire and give it to, and take that energy from the ego by separating from it. 
But if we feed ego, if we feed our desires, we make them stronger. And as the laws of Manu teach, which is one of the oldest scriptures in, known to humanity, we find the following quote. Through the attachment of, the, of his organs to sensual pleasure, a man or a woman doubtlessly will incur guilt. So sexual organs. Again, this is scripture is teaching us that people who are attached to sex in order to commit fornication will incur guilt, meaning of a psychological type. Because to fornicate is the, is the original sin. But if he keeps his organs or keeps them under complete control, he will obtain success in gaining all his aims. So this is the, the clear uh, support for chastity rather than fornication. And again, chastity means, doesn't mean a sexual abstention. It means using the, the sexual energy with purity, not for lust. So desire is never extinguished by the enjoyment of desired objects. It only grows stronger like a fire fed with clarified butter. So to feed, people think that one has a catharsis by feeding desire. And many people in these times say you need to feed your ego in, in order to stop it from doing what it will. But people ignore that you feed anger, you make it stronger. It only will come back with greater force. And therefore, I think the Buddhists teach, um, what is better than scratching an itch? Is having no itch. So uh, again, it's a symbol for the need to take, transform the fire of anger and passion into the light of understanding and harmony. This is the image of the Kabbalah, the tree of life, Otz Chaim, or tree of lives. Differentiate into different uh, spheres, di uh, mapping out into differentiated levels of matter, energy, and consciousness. So in order to develop consciousness, we talk about working with energy. So we study many levels of energy relating to our psyche, our spirit, and our being in order to harness those forces and give them to our soul so that we can unite with our being. So as we mentioned, we need energy to function, whether mentally, emotionally, physically. Likewise, spiritually, we need energy to develop spiritual sight. And so this energy is mapped out in different levels according to the Kabbalah. And Kabbalah is the map of the, the human being and the divine. So these 10 spheres above represent the tree of life. The spheres below represent Klipot and Kabbalah or hell, negative states, infernal states, the ego. Whereas we want to climb the tree of life towards the source, the absolute, from which all creation emerges. So we find here uh, these spheres mapped out in terms of levels of, of types of energy. So some island VR states the following in the Great Rebellion. It is not possible to increase consciousness by exclusively physical or mechanical procedures. Undoubtedly, the consciousness can only awaken through conscious work and voluntary suffering. So this quote can be challenging because in order to develop consciousness, we need to learn how to work with our soul. Have the, to let the soul be the one who works with the energies of our psyche, but also to have the, the will to, to suffer voluntarily. I mean, it doesn't mean we look for trouble. It doesn't mean we go out of our way to suffer. It means that we face our particular circumstances with rectitude, with ethics, with uh, acceptance, just as Jesus wore that crown of thorns and when he's confronting his mind. So it means we have to be willing to suffer 
the consequences of our past actions in order to remediate them to retain uh, peace. So by confronting the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, we take arms against the seed troubles and by opposing, end them. It's a form of suffering. It's a form of war, we say, against our negativity. But when God, if God be with us, as the Bible says, who can be against us? I believe Paul of Tarsus mentioned that. I doubt that the consciousness can only awaken through unconscious work and voluntary suffering. Within us, there are various types of energy which we must understand. And if we take a look at this graph, we see the differentiation of these levels of energy. First, mechanical energy. Second, vital energy. Third, energy of the psyche or emotions. Fourth, mental energy. Fifth, energy of the will. Sixth, energy of the consciousness. And seventh, energy of the spirit, pure spirit. Above that, you have three spheres relating to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we denominate as Christ, the Trinity. Three expressions or three forces that is one light. Now, to emphasize how to develop light inside, we need to work with these forces and be aware of how they function inside. The consciousness must learn to use and understand these energies in accordance with the will of God, in accordance with the Spirit. And um, we need to learn how to use these forces with awareness. However, magnifying and amplifying these forces inside is not enough. We can save a lot of energy, but we have to know how to use it. Consciousness is a force that is beyond mechanical energy, vital energy, psychic or emotional energy, mental energy, or will. However, the soul needs to use our will, our mind, our heart, our vital forces, and our body in order to awaken. So Samuel Vior emphasizes the need to work with consciousness in the Great Rebellion. No matter how much we might increase our strictly mechanical energy, we will never awaken consciousness. No matter how much we might increase the vital forces within our own organism, we will never awaken consciousness. Many psychological processes take place within us, emotional processes, without any intervention of the consciousness. However great the discipline of the mind might be, mental energy can never achieve the awakening of the diverse functions of the consciousness. Even if our willpower is multiplied infinitely, it can never bring about the awakening of the consciousness. All these types of energy are graded into different levels and dimensions, which have nothing to do with the consciousness. Consciousness can only be awakened through conscious work and upright efforts. So this is a subtle doctrine. The soul can only awaken if it is working, if it is aware. We may have a lot of mental energy to study intellectually. We may have a lot of vital energy to exercise, mechanical energy to work out, emotional energy in our hearts. We may have a lot of will to get through life, but that doesn't mean that we're awakened consciously. We may uh, see many, certainly we, we see many examples in life of people who have a strong will or a strong mental force or, or sharp intellectually, people, or people who are very devotional or individuals who are very strong physically. They may have a lot of that force active in them, but it doesn't mean that they're conscious. And this is the distinction. To know what the consciousness is, is to 
have upright efforts, the soul has to exercise itself in accordance with the impulse of the spirit. So these forces by themselves do nothing. We look at humanity in, in many examples as we mentioned of people who have a lot of certain mental force or will, but it doesn't mean that they are awakened spiritually. There's a different type of energy involved. And the way to recognize it is to observe and to meditate. Upright efforts are defined by learning to separate from thought, feeling, will. To see these energies and how they function and to use them according with the consciousness. Now, just because you amplify, we amplify those energies inside won't mean we awaken more. It just means we have more force. But how we use that energy determines our life. Because people may have a lot of will or mental force, prayer, devotion, emotionality, vitality, physical strength. These are qualities that are uh, important to our society, but don't signify that we are spiritually developed. Because the consciousness is, is a force beyond that. So we develop that by meditating and by remembering divinity and by exercising the soul. But of course, we need those energies to be used by the spirit so that the soul is strengthened. But consciousness is not limited to those elements. In this final graphic, we have uh, Devi Kundalini, Durga, in Hinduism, who is the highest embodiment of the most divine forces we carry inside. She is our divine mother, the feminine aspect of our being. And the fact that she rides on a tiger represents, she rides on the sexual power. In India, they represented the tiger as the, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, which Originally, as an animal, is a power that the Divine Mother uses in order to help slay the ego. Notice she has many weapons in her arms, indicating that she is universal. She has the power of ubiquity. She is the light of any universe. Every star, planet, sun, galaxy throughout the infinite space is dictated by her. She is the intelligence of every atom. She's the intelligence at the root of our consciousness. And with her many arms, she indicates her, 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 uh, her universal nature. The fact that she can be many places at once. She's everywhere and yet nowhere. Not confined to one place. The weapons she carries in her arms represents the weapons we need to fight against our ego. She's the one who helps us to, to fight against our inner demons. She's the light of our root perception. She is the real being that we must work with. She is the one who grants us freedom, peace, love, compassion, understanding, faith, union with the most divine principles we carry inside. Within her, she is, she is absolute perfection. She is the Virgin Mary. She is Athena. She is Kibale. She is Durga. She is Devi Kundalini. She is Maya. Many names in different religions, but she is the root of our being. She's the light of our perception. And through her, we attain liberation. She is that liberation itself. And so in this image, you know, uh, it's the story I want to relate to you is a famous story given in Hinduism uh, relating to how the gods were at war with the demons. Possibly, I believe, in the Mahabharata. 
I don't remember what scripture specifically, but the gods were in trouble. Earth and heaven were being taken over by the buffalo demon with his many legions in which these demons are plotting to take over the cosmos. And the gods sat Indra, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, all the gods sat together and discussed this issue and what they needed to do to, to kill the buffalo demon and his legions. So they all contributed to create Durga. So Brahma is the father, Vishnu is the son, Shiva is the Holy Ghost in uh, Hindu terms. And all that energy that poured from divinity entered into her to create Durga. And in this quote, we find this uh, beautiful teaching about the energy, the most divine energies we carry within that can help awaken our consciousness. When Vishnu, the husband of Lakshmi, and the great Lord Shiva heard the speech of Brahma, meaning Brahma, the father who decided that they must wage war against this buffalo demon, their angry faces became so monstrous that one could not look upon them. From Vishnu's mouth that blazed with extreme anger or divine justice, his great energy came forth. And similarly from Sambhu and from the creator and from the bodies of Indra and all the other gods, the cruel energies, the severe forces of the divine came forth and they all became one. The great mass of their united energies seemed to all the multitudes of gods like a blazing mountain that pervaded all the regions of the sky with flames. So that, what is that fire? That sexual power, which is the power of divine justice and we carry in our sexual energy. Then from the combination of these energies, a certain woman appeared. Her head appeared from the energy of Shiva, her two arms from the energy of Vishnu, her two feet from the energy of Brahma, and from her waist and from the energy of Indra. Her hair was made from Yama's energy. Yama is the god of death. Her two breasts from the moon's energy. Her thighs from the energy of Varuna. Her hips from the earth's energy. From her toes, her toes from the sun's energy. Her fingers were formed by the energy of Vasus. Her nose of Kubera's energy. Her rows of teeth from the energy of nine Prajapatis. Her two eyes arose from the energy of oblation, the oblation bearer. The two twilights became her two brows and her ears were made from the energy of the wind. And from the incredibly fierce energies of the other gods, other limbs were made for the woman who was the supremely radiant Durga, more dangerous than all the gods and demons. So who is this goddess Devi Kundalini, our divine mother? She is Athena mentioned in Greek mythology. She's the warrior goddess who helps Odysseus kill all the suitors in the Odyssey who threatened to take over his kingdom. Athena is the one who helped Perseus. Durga is that fierce energy of divine compassion which fights against all the impurities of our psyche. And in this myth of, the, of uh, Hinduism, Durga is sent to confront the buffalo demon and she fights his many legions with millions of arms. And every ego that is, spill, is slain, that is killed, their blood is uh, touching the ground. Many demons, more demons would sprout as a result because the ego multiplies if we identify with it. That energy can create more egos. But Durga, in this very graphic myth, she kills these demons and drinks the blood of the demons. And... People interpret the story literally thinking, well, there's a woman who literally came with a thousand arms, a million arms, and was killing demons and drinking their blood. And it's a very graphic image, but it's a symbol. How that blood of energy of the, that was used by the ego is now being reabsorbed back into the being. And it's a war. This is a jihad. 
as mentioned in uh, Hinduism. So we have to steal energy from the ego to stop feeding it if we want to develop spiritually. And when we cease to act on the ego and work with our Divine Mother, she kills those defects as we comprehend them more and more. So in synthesis, we need to rely on our Divine Mother. She is a... She is a the height of our aspirations, and she's the one who can help us develop understanding. So we have to remember, she is our true being. She is our true divinity. She is the true self. She is more terrible than any demon when she is wroth. But she is the Virgin Mary. She is beauty. She is light. She is ferocity. She is the energy that governs divine space, any galaxy, any sun. And we have that inside. So if we feel overwhelmed by our daily life, our problems, our mind, we have to remember that our Divine Mother is beyond that and she is ready to help us. So with patience, possess ye your souls, as Jesus taught. And uh, it's important to remember that to develop light inside, we have to eliminate darkness. But that begins with self-observation by working with mantra. With, with pranayama, working with forces, conserving our energies and awakening our perception so that we can work with her. We need questions or comments. So when you say uh, conscious work, it's the, that's the same, an upfront effort. It's, it's the, 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 the work, the, the doing the meditation, the right, and the, the runes and all that. Right, that's upright. Yeah, that's upright efforts. Because, uh, that's a, that's okay. because with upright efforts, uh, here's the thing: we can practice these exercises, but if we do it mechanically, we uh, we may do it with effort. But the question is: is it upright effort? Meaning, are we really aware of what we do? Because the exercises are effective so long as we are in remembrance, and uh, those practices help to augment and strengthen our consciousness, our awareness. But also, uh, they help to, uh, those practices are, it's a mutual, those practices are strengthened by how much awareness we have, but also those exercises help to strengthen our consciousness. So upright reference has to do with using our three brains with awareness whenever we do any practice, like a mantra or runes. So that doesn't, so upright efforts is entailed with doing, excuse me, doing our exercises. To help us to uh, transform our mind. So the conscious work is is part of all that. Yes, conscious work involves self observation, being aware of the our internal states, and knowing ourselves more deeply. But also, conscious work is involved when we face ordeals, challenges, or egos we have we didn't even know existed come up, mm-hmm. and we have to confront that. So conscious work happens when we are facing problems, when the ego, such as egos of pride or anger emerge in a certain circumstance, and we resist that. We don't act on it. So we suffer voluntarily because we let the circumstance occurs, but we don't identify with it. We volunteer to suffer the consequences of that experience and not to retaliate. But we learn to... uh, comprehend that, that that problem or that ordeal or not, not to react with the mind but to respond with love 
So if someone curses us and gives us antagonism or suffering, we respond with love. And um, that's a form of conscious work. But conscious work involves also an upright efforts, involves meditating every day and working to transmute every day as well. Practicing the, the exercises we have to give us energy, to give us focus, to strengthen our perception and our, and our consciousness. But also when we face those problems, the, inev the inevitable difficulties of life, and we volunteer to suffer the consequences of being here, not necessarily going out of our way to look for problems. I volunteered to be yelled at by my boss. You know, we don't have to look, we don't have to, we don't have to look for that, but we have to, we have to, when it happens, we volunteer, we accept the circumstance. We don't, we don't talk back to the boss or say something negative or hurtful to a family member if we are contradicted, but to be willing to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But we bear arms against our own troubles, our mind, in order to oppose and end them. You talked about separating from our feeling and thoughts and, 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 and will. Um, but I, I can't really, you know, I try to think about it, you know, but I can't really bend or feel it. Feel it. Well, here's the thing. We don't have to, uh, consciousness is very dynamic. When I, when I mentioned that we need to separate from our thinking, our feeling, and our sensations, it means while these things go on, we don't identify with them. It doesn't mean we negate them or we suppress or uh, reject them, but to comprehend them. Consciousness isn't a bland state or a zombie-like state. By, by not thinking or feeling or, or experiencing or feeling sensations, doesn't mean that we become like, like dead to life. People think like the self-observation means you're about thought, feeling, but that's who I am. And that's the thing. We, we commonly associate our identity with our thinking, feeling, and acting. But here's the thing. Consciousness can use the mind, the heart, the body. And we need our intellect. We need our emotions. We need our body. These are constituents of who we are, especially for certain jobs, such as being if you're a teacher, you have to use your intellect a lot. And uh, I know in my case, when teaching, I have to use my intellect. doesn't necessarily mean that uh, I identify it with the intellect, but I use it for its purpose to get a certain goal. So the perspective is I'm not the thoughts, I'm not the feelings, I'm not the, the body, but I am the one using my thoughts, my mind, my heart, my body. And to experience that, that differentiation is challenging, but the experience of that realization will give you a lot of faith in terms of identifying who we are genuinely inside. Because in a moment, if we observe and uh, see ourselves in a new way, where we have that shock, I'm not the, I'm not the mind, I'm not the body, I'm not the heart, I'm beyond that. It's a shock to the psyche that we can only know by experience. And uh, through work. But the thing is, uh, typically our daily experiences, we, we think, we feel, we go throughout our day. We consider this to be who we are. But uh, what will aid, what can help you in terms of learning to deepen your awareness is to work with energy. Because the, uh, uh, the same qualities that we have for awakening in dreams, such as uh, if you've especially worked with a mantra and 
awakening in the internal worlds, that same state of awareness is self-observation, remembering the divine. So if we lack insight, we should work with energy, give our soul more energy through transmutation to help raise our level of being. Sometimes, you know, I, I know personally when I'm going through my day, many times I forget my I forget my awareness and I lose sense of my observation. And to help rectify that, I work with a mantra to help remember, circulate those energies so that I can be more vigilant, more aware, and not necessarily get identified with my the intellectual intellectuality uh, intellectuality of my job or uh getting over you know identify with uh negative emotions if I have a problem or difficulty so it's necessary throughout the day many times in order to continue to de- develop our awareness to sit back close our eyes reflect for 5 minutes just breathe you can just do a breathing exercise count the breath be aware of the body especially if our job is very excuse me very uh demanding it's good to take a break once in a while just to sit back and to take five minutes no more you can do a quick you can do pranayama a quick mantra if you, you can find a, some solitude or a breathing exercise to relax because we need to relax and to observe many times sit back relax observe especially if our work is very uh, demanding we need to find that space in order to be aware of what we're doing, especially if we're agitated. Because usually we go throughout the day very agitated and we're not even aware that we're agitated. Or we drink 10 cups of coffee and we don't realize that we're agitated, but we are. We think we're not, but we are. But then what happens is uh, we're, we're so wound up all the time, we fail to see the state of our mind, which is chaotic. But if you sit back and learn to meditate, we see that the mind is all over the place. And uh, that's the beginning. We have to be aware of that. But the way that we develop our awareness is by making frequent practices throughout the day. Just to sit, observe, and sit back. Okay, I'm going to take five minutes from my computer and try to be present. Not to, and try to be aware of what we're doing, what, what one's doing. And that's a skill that we develop with time, with practice. And then do your mantra in your head, not vocally, it's not Actually, it is more helpful. Being doing it out loud is I recommend really we recommend to mantraize out loud helps to transmute is effective. Whispering is even more powerful, but then mentally is even more powerful. Swami Shivananda mentioned this in one of his books because if we're doing mental japa, mental mantra presentation, we can be doing we can be teaching or doing our activities and our work and um, doing a mantra in our mind while we're physically active in order to still remember our divinity. Usually in the beginning, it's hard because we don't have that much strength in our awareness where it's good to sit for an hour, 30 minutes or 10 minutes to do a mantra out loud to help gain stability. But with more practice and skill, we can learn to be doing our daily activities while mentally reciting a mantra or um, reflecting and uh, being aware while being active. It takes more skill and that's why it's more profound. It's more effective, more re- overreaching. This is why many yogis, you see them with beads. Traditionally, they would have a hand in their bag, a bag. They keep it hidden from others, and they would do would be talking or working or doing other things, but they'd be doing the prayer bead recitation in their mind while being physically awake and active. So it takes more skill, but it's more effective. So it's 
pronouncing a mantra mentally is uh, powerful, but it's good to sit and to do a mantra out loud to help get to that level of, uh, you could say, uh, aptitude, uh, you could say dexterity and strength and pliability of mind to be able to do that. But we recommend uh, to do it out loud is, is good, is necessary. In the so, but also, uh, but also throughout our work, because if you do it out loud by praying, uh, by praying, and such as by the beach, doing the runes, we force the body to vibrate at a higher level of being. Then we that transmute forces. But then throughout our day, we can do mantras mentally. So a combination of both is necessary. Is important. Um, so, so I, I mean, it's I'm doing, yeah, but it's. All day, I, I'm just doing five, ten minutes of nothing in the morning. I mean, I think that's what you're really saying here is that we need to have a substantial amount of practice. We do. And the thing is not to be discouraged by what we, do, what we can't do, but to have confidence about what we can do. So in the beginning, it's good to practice. Uh, I recommend really practicing short periods of time frequently instead of trying to sit doing a three-hour meditation which I know some people who try to meditate for eight hours a day and it's like they burn out and they end up not practicing anymore. It's like, well, too much. The thing is uh, the build up to the stamina in order to sit still for one place for a long time. You do it in 15 minute increments, 20 minute increments briefly, brief periods, but to do it frequently. And um, Prophet Muhammad said, God doesn't judge us based on what we can't do, but um what we promise that we can do and that we do every day effectively. So the way that we become athletes of meditation is by building up our stamina. Any athlete doesn't go out, doesn't do eight hours of exercise straight through in the beginning. They gain strength by frequent practices, short periods of time, and they develop their abilities more and more. And the thing is when we practice in small increments like that, we uh, can see the benefits and the results of the exercise. And that it's naturally inspires us to want to practice more instead of trying to force ourselves to do something that is difficult. So if you find that 30 minutes of, of mantra or 10 minutes of mantra is enough, do that and let that be your daily practice. And you find with, fre with frequency and consistency, there's a greater longing and aspiration to do more instead of saying, I'm gonna do an hour of meditation, do an hour of this, do an hour of that and uh, trying to do so much that one cashes out. It's, it becomes mechanical and too much. And then many people try meditation like that. They burn out and they stop practicing. They say, oh, it's harmful. Well, the way they were practicing was harmful because they try to do so much being in a mechanical way that they didn't get any benefit. You know, if we can meditate 30 minutes a day or whatever brief practice we can do, as long as we're consistent, that's how we develop, not based on trying to do so much and then then falling short of that. And then having the defeatism of saying, oh, I can't meditate, I can't do this, because it's too much. Well, the way we gain confidence is small practices frequently, little by little. And that's how we learn how to be vigilant all the time. And so, so we can break it up into maybe sometimes doing a mantra alternating it. Yeah, find your group, find your groove in relation to your needs. So you may want to do a mantra for a practice, and then later uh, 
sacred rites or runes. You know, it's good to diversify our work. Usually we, what we do is uh, two things we need to be consistent with is transmuting, such as through a mantra or pranayama or sacred rites or runes, and then meditating, meaning observing our mind and analyzing our mental states throughout the day. Those are the two most important things. Meditating on our defects, contemplating our being, meaning uh, understanding our, what causes our suffering and working to change that. And then having the energy to do so through runes or mantra, pranayama. So whatever those exercises may be, whether they're runes, sacred rites, that's up to the student because we all have different needs. And you may find certain practices help you develop certain things more than others. For me, I like to do a mantra called SM Hon for an hour a day. I try to sometimes I break it up into smaller segments. It helps me to clear my mind. I found that mantra very effective for me. Sometimes in the past, I've wanted to work with the runes and that I needed that more. So you find that your needs will change. Therefore, work with certain exercises that you need to help to circulate the energies. But two things have to be constant. We have to be transmuting every day and we need to meditate. Have the force to have a peaceful mind, a clear mind, and then to analyze in ourselves what caused conflict or what caused this situation in our life? What was a mental state in our psyche that we need to change to have an inner accounting? So, so what about, uh, I, I, I'm still kind of reading the uh, Yin Yoga. Would that be a good one to um, the, for the mantras? Yes, especially if you're learning to awaken in uh, internal worlds. And so one of them that I read recently is Hamsa. Yes. And uh, but but it, it's um, it, I think it describes as um, Ham is we don't vocalize it. Right. And then Sa when you vocalize it, vocalize it it's a sigh. Yes. Ham when we do mantra basically you can imagine. Those two channels of energy rising up from the cossacks to the brain, like a intertwined serpents. This is the caduceus of Mercury, represented as a symbol of medicine. So we imagine those energies ascending up. We inhale the prana, the sexual power, with the mantra hum. Mentalize in your mind, hum, bringing the forces into the brain. And then Imagine those energies descend from the third eye, from the brain, the neck, to the heart. With the mantra, quick, short, doesn't need to be elaborate. Just the inhalation should be more profound, meaning we're focusing more on the inhalation of the energy inward and upward to the brain. And then when we exhale, we bring it to the heart. Sa. Sa should be not. The, the exhalation should not be longer than the inhalation. I know people who really extend the mantra like well, Samael mentioned that we need to, the, the importance is the inhalation. We want to bring the energy in, out, inward and out. Yeah, and then Sa just brings it to the heart. Sa is lunar, Ham is solar. Ham is the, the centrifugal force. 
is what it says, centripetal, meaning to go from outside to in, to the brain. Sa brings out the heart. So the inhalation needs to be more profound. And that mantra, that exercise of transmutation, if we just sit and meditate and do that pranayama exercise, hamsa, we can experience what he calls the illuminating void, which he mentions in dream yoga. It's uh, the absolute, the divine mother's face, which is beyond the tree of life. As you saw in that image of the circle above the 10 spheres, that the absolute is the space, the cosmic space, no form, but uh, it is the, the origin of all cosmoses. It is the divine mother herself, the primordial light or the, the space, you could say, from which any star emerges. That's a very elevated uh, samadhi or ecstasy we can have mm-hmm. in which uh, hamsa can help us. Ham is like, hamsa is like a pump. We pump the energy to our brain, your heart, and then we, and then we, it's like a, it's, yeah, it's, he's, the way he described it is a pumping energy to the brain and the heart. And that, that charges us, the soul with force so that we can have that samadhi, that ecstasy. And he mentions that in dream yoga. So dream yoga is excellent for mantras for helping with, uh, helping to project out of the body to go into the dream world. So in conjunction with meditation is effective. So if we find that we're awakening in dreams more, it means that we're doing it because uh, we can say that a successful meditation, if we fall asleep meditating, we go out of our body, we're aware of what we're doing, being awakened in the internal world means that we meditated well as we're awake. So we leave behind the physical body and then can investigate things more profoundly. I'll always remember that pumping the energy. I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> Bring the energy in. I've known people, but the problem is I've known people who I've seen, instru- I knew one instructor who was, he was doing it really quick. And the thing is, Samuel describes that the important thing is to be relaxed, not forcing it. Because I noticed in that instructor, he was really sending the energies out. Sa, sa, sa. He was doing sa. So ex- this is a unfortunate case of a guy I knew. He was doing uh, sa really exaggerated and too long and too quickly. And he was, wasn't sending the energy to his brain. He was losing it. He was, you know doing it in the inverse way, where it becomes sa-ham, which is negative. Ham-sa is positive. That teaches the, the how to redirect the forces in a centripetal way, I believe. Centripetal force means outside to in. Centrifugal, I believe, means inside to out. That's the problem with our breathing. Typically, we're in centrifugal, whereas our breathing sends the forces, the circulation of energies out. That's the act of fornication. The energies go out of the body, whereas with by hamsa we we try to redirect that flow inside. Outside in is centripetal. Yes, I believe I might have a mix. I'll let I'll get back to you. I just sometimes my science, my terminology is a little iffy, but the the difference basically the difference of the forces is we want to get the energies to flow in, in uh, outside to in. Whereas our problem is that people send the energy from inside out. We want to conserve those forces. So that by pumping the energy inward and upward to our brain, we charge ourselves. And that gives us uh, more force, light, understanding. So we need to transmute to help. Um, so, it, so if someone is listening to me 
All they can hear is sun. Exactly. So, oh. so if you come on a retreat with us, you'll see, you know, when we do that mantra, groups of people, like 40, 50 people, you hear breathing. Uh, you, okay. It's nice, you know, people, you know, we practice as a group like that, but you hear that, that vowel sa. So it, the inhalation is mental. Our inhalation is we inhale profoundly. The mantra is mental, hum. That's more pronounced. And then sa, brief, quiet, relaxed. So we shouldn't be forcing our breath. So when someone else mentions that we need to pump the energy, it doesn't even go sa, sa, like Force people. I know people. Who, I know people who did that. I know. I knew. I knew a Gnostic girl who, woman who did that, and, and it's just wrong because you don't force it. Someone else says you gotta do it quietly, relax. I tried correcting her, but <laughs> yeah. But uh, some people uh, have their interpretations. But the way that someone on VR mentioned is. Uh, do it quietly, relaxed, mm -hmm. not forced. Because the energy is more psychological or psychic, subtle than physical. The physical component is of importance, but how we redirect the energy, we have to be relaxed in order to do it effectively. If we're tense, it means the mind is tense. It means that we're not, awake, not really fully aware of what's making us tense. That's why relaxation is essential. I'm trying to been trying to meditate, but um, but my thoughts is just really going wild. Work with uh, work with uh, mantra. Okay. Or transmute because uh, the problem is here's the thing to train the mind to not be wild. We have to uh, for one thing practice frequently but short intervals. Do preliminary concentration exercises such as. Uh, you can do a mantra for a few minutes. And I, I would say don't, don't sit for so, periods of time that are so long that the mind continues to race and then it gets burdensome where it's why I don't want to do this anymore. Well, take short practices with a mantra. Do it out loud and then you can do it silently for a few minutes. And gradually with frequency of practice and by learning to observe throughout the day, we learn to gain more focus in our awareness. The problem is when we, we realize that when we sit to practice, the mind is wild, it's all over the place. The way that we train the mind is do frequent practices at a short period of time and uh, to deepen vigilance throughout the day. Look for time, periods of the day in which you get distracted, most of all. Because the fact that we sit down and we look at our mind and we see that it's all over the place indicates that there's certain uh, tendencies or habits that we have throughout the day which are producing that. So obviously if we sit to practice for an hour a day to observe our mind, if we let our mind go wild the whole day, those 23 hours are going to negate that one hour of practice. So it's a so it's a discipline where we have to learn to be aware at work throughout the day, at home, and even when we physically sleep. The way that we help strengthen our, that light that awareness is by conserving our energies, but also being vigilant throughout the day. Because for our meditation and practice to be effective, we have to be working to observe our mind and to be to in order for it to be silent. It'll quiet naturally as we learn to not identify with it. 
if we repress it, the mind gets agitated. We, uh, the mind gets tensed. People who, who get tensed, very stiff. I know people who try to self-observe and like, I am self-observing. No, <laughs> you got to be relaxed. People like that, you know, they're missing the point. The point is, it's a relaxed state. It's the natural state of the mind is to be calm. So the work that we have to do is to relax and to observe. Doesn't take any type of, uh, even though we talk about spiritual war and, you know, effort, it's not mental effort. It's a conscious effort and it's relaxed. You know, you ever notice in certain, like in uh, Aikido martial arts, I, know, I remember when I used to train in that art form, the best practices I ever had was when I'm fully relaxed. So you can have five guys coming at you. You're calm, you're throwing people. You almost hit a guy, knock him over and you push him down. And you do punches and They're things like that. Oh, uh, and if rela- exactly. No, really. You have to be. You know, people think like you got to be tense. Like, no, be- the best martial arts practice is when you're relaxed. And that so different egos can come at you in a certain instant, but you're relaxed, controlling your mind. And I mean, I'm doing a dance, but that's the thing. That's the thing. We have to be calm. If you're agitated, if you're tensed, it's because if we're agitated and tense, it means that we're identify with uh, ego. So the greatest warriors like the samurai, they they would meditate before a battle. So they would be calm. And then when that time came, they were ready. Likewise, spiritually, we learn to meditate, learn to observe ourselves and to relax. And then the effort, it's, it's really a Zen teaching, effortless effort. So I'm talking about effort, not exertion. Exertion is uh, the mind where we think we have to use mental energy or emotional energy or, or mechanical energy to get something done, which we have to do. But the way that we do it is with, by um, using conscious effort. And conscious effort doesn't mean exertion, to f- use a lot of force. It just means to be aware, be awake, and calm. And then naturally we learn to uh, deal with all our problems. We're calm, relaxed. You know, we're getting different problems are attacking us, our ego attacks us. Apprehend it, knock it down, and you deal with it. And it doesn't doesn't bother. It's it is martial arts. It's judo, but people think you know self-observation. Tense. Observing myself. No, that's not observation. That's that's. But I still remember though so strongly that you're saying that our uh, ego wants to observe ourselves too. Yeah, the ego. So the ego. I, I am not certain that I I am. Doing it right, and I know I'm. I'm pretty sure that I. It's my ego. It's just me observing me. Well, the question is. The question is, uh, in terms of who's observing who, a good practice uh, we can work with is a Zen practice in which observe the observer. Who is the one observing? It's not a. It's not a mental exercise, but if you sit and reflect like we did at the beach or certain practices where you just observe the mind. And typically what happens is we, so I know when I, when I would do this, my mind says I'm observing myself or uh, I think I'm doing this, but um, the mind, here's the thing. The mind always thinks, labels, talks. Observation has no thinker inside, no thought, but simply sees, is aware. So to make that differentiation is, uh, is uh, 
we can we can do that based on just sitting to practice mindfulness. We, the meditation, you can just sit, observe. And if you have thoughts, if you see the thoughts coming up, observe. Let it go. Let it come and go. And uh, we have to learn how to separate from the thinking, the incessant thinking on the mind. But the fact that you sense and you see that the mind is wild and all over the place, that's observation. It feels weak because there's a lot of elements that are chaotic. But the fact that you're seeing that is the beginning, is important. That's what we need to cultivate. And with anybody can see that. But the thing is, to really go at the heart and at the root of that dynamic, we need energy. So if observation feels weak, we need to give our more fuel to our soul. That's why we pray, that's why we do runes to give us energy so that we can observe. Because mm-hmm. without energy, we can't, we're just too weak and uh, get caught, swept away with uh, the current. So the beginning is to see that we're stuck in a current and that it's pulling us. Mm-hmm. That sense of knowing that is, the st- is what we have to focus on in order to uh, make the changes we need. But yeah, the mind, you know, the ego, even the ego says, I'm observing. But to know the difference is a qualitative measure. It takes conscious effort, upright efforts, but relaxed, like a, like a dance, like martial arts. When the mind comes at us with, with certain thoughts, preoccupations, worries. We just look at it, observe it, don't go with it, don't identify with it. And to not identify with it is a, the work of striving, mujahida in Arabic or jihad. That's, the kind of, that's how we wage war. It's what we're calm, relaxed. And at peace. And uh, with, don't, ex- you know, if you feel that this is challenging, it is challenging. Because the thing is, uh, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. But people would just go with the flow. They think they're, they're doing and they're thinking, they're, they're the ones doing and creating and um, deciding how th- their life goes. But really, people are just being swept, up, swept along by the current. So uh, people, people see, people have perception, they're awake. They think they're, they think they're spiritually awakened because they're physically awake, but they don't even know they're in darkness. But um, it is, it is uh, very, very difficult and painful, but the way that we can help humanity is by helping ourselves first. And then that way we learn how to help other people be inspired to change, to uh, to do better in life. And I have one last thing to you. I think you mentioned it before. Uh, in terms of the attitude that you have toward divinity, how did you cultivate that? Because you mentioned you you enjoy you submit to divinity, right? You you, you worship it. Um, I just don't have that feeling that, that I should be worshiping anybody. I know it's a pride. Uh, probably, we shouldn't. Right? We shouldn't worship anybody. But the but co- that's what you're saying. But the thing is, uh, God is not anybody else. <laughs> our God is our real, our inner God is the our genuine identity, who at the very height of who we are, that is the source from which we come from. Worship, it doesn't mean... Um, Submitting to a statue 
or believing in a external person. To worship is to have that love for the very force that gives us life. And to, how did you come to having that sort of a devotion? We develop, we develop, we develop that based on seeing. So that light, when we, when we are face to face with the beauty of God, we see how we owe everything that is good in our life to that. Like we look at our parents who gave us life and supported us and raised us. The same awe that a child has for their father or mother that supports them and really gives them love. That's the type of relationship we need to have. So the type of uh, love that a child bears its parents is the same love that we have towards our divine mother. So every mother that we've had in every existence doesn't even come close to our divine mother in terms of her compassion and her grace. I don't ever feel my being. I don't ever feel that divine mother. Uh, and that's a common thing because and that's a common thing because, you know, unfortunately, especially in the West, people have a people have lost or people struggle with developing that devotion in the heart. And it's a very common thing. And the thing the way to develop it is to reflect on Meditate on the being. Some practices we can do. If, if you if you feel an affinity towards any religion, one religion or the other, like Christianity, people pray to the Virgin Mary, but that's a representation of our divine mother. And uh, we have to. Not, well, I mentioned that we need to reflect on the qualities in our mind that produce suffering, but we need to harmonize that and balance that with meditating on divine virtue, meaning the the qualities that we see saw exemplified in Jesus or in Buddha, the kind of love that those beings show to humanity. So that those type of those acts of selflessness that we've seen in perhaps in other people physically, but in really the great prophets in humanity, we have to reflect on that and be to to be inspired by those qualities is to see them in ourselves and to see that we have that potential and that those qualities that are really divine come from the being. So simple practices we can do to help understand what does it mean to be devoted? And this is a good question because it's hard to understand what it means to be devoted. But we, the way that simple practices we can do, we do certain prayers, not mechanically like the, like a, the church or people, the way people commonly practice, and everyone's like, Amen. And they, and they feel good and they feel, you know, that's, that's not the prayer we're talking about. The devotion we have towards God is like a child that is grateful for its father for rescuing it from death. The kind of love that a, a child experiences towards their parents. Likewise, our divine parents give us a, can give us a genuine state of uh, happiness. So we have to reflect on those divine qualities in our experience to, for it to be really factual and verifiable. Because if we take it as something foreign in, in the beginning, we feel like it's uh, perhaps something outside of us. But the way that we develop devotion is by seeing, by knowing, by experiencing. Because when we experience the, like Moses was before the burning bush, the symbol of the tree of life, 
illuminated by the fire of Christ, or was before that presence in his dreams, his internal experiences. That was uh, terrifying, but also beautiful, because that energy is so powerful. Like mentioned in that story about Durga, she's like a mountain of blazing fire. And uh, I recommend that in order to develop that devotion, work with what's tangible and concrete. Whatever issues or struggles you may have, offer them up to God and ask for help in relation to that. Now, God, again, we don't have to think of God like some guy in the clouds, but we have to think of it as the, a force or an awareness that is inside, not outside. So when we realize that be, the being is within us, not outside, that can inspire us to develop that devotion. And we develop devotion based on our experience. And if it's hard, and if it's hard to understand that, it's not nothing wrong. It's just a matter of of practicing. Like we do at the beach, we do those prayers. We ask for life inside to give. The, we do the rune, like the rune man. We pray to the the sun that gives us life, and with strength we seek to invoke those forces in order to uh, fill our being with the energy. That's what we need. So those practices can help strengthen our devotion, but. It's better if we, in the meditation, we go out of our body and speak face-to-face to the being and to know divinity in that way. And that helps, if that makes sense. Because uh, to kind of accept something at face value and say, well, I know I sh- and I'm told I, or I read or I learn that we should pray, but prayer comes as a result of uh, like a relationship of a child to a father, a child to a mother. That love that... It, parents have for a kid. It's the same as divinity for us. And uh, Dostoevsky wrote, who's a hero of crime and punishment, Brothers Karamazov, he said, human love is a reflection of divine love. So the same love that a, a mother, like a mother who sees her kid, it was, there's like cases of like a kid getting caught under a car and a mother who is weak picks the car up. And then you have one of these guys from the World's Strongest Man competition try to do the same thing. He's like, I can't do this. But the mother could. You see the amount of love that a mother shows for a kid. Our divine mother is like that. Cares for our emotional, psychological well-being. So the same love that a mother has for a kid like that, the child has that love for a parent. It's the same thing. Nothing different. And it's not outside. It's inside. So be, to be aware of um, that. Uh, it's hard to love something. And the thing is, we learn to we we learn to we learn to experience that and to know that with practice. And uh, like I I've mentioned before in other lectures about the story of the the practice of neti, N-E-T-I, not this, not this. We have a feeling in our heart that we want to know more. We don't know where the uh, sentiment comes from, but we feel that longing. So we practice, we work, we look at our mind, we observe this is not God. Well, this is definitely not God. I know this ain't God. But we keep searching, we feel that longing. It's that inspiration which pushes us to work to experience and know. Because I know I remember in my case, I took years, my whole life, I was burning with something. I didn't know where it came from, and I couldn't identify it as God or whatnot. But I eventually came to a point where I said, I'm so sick of suffering that 
I'm either going to find the purpose for my life or I'm not going to be here anymore. I determined for myself, I need to know why I'm here. It was that pain and that longing and that yearning to know why I suffered that eventually pushed me and I found gnosis and started practicing and eventually had experiences and confirming where my being was showing me this is, I've been with you all along and pushing you and trying to get you to realize you're suffering, but you wouldn't listen. And then, but it's the same thing, that longing. I kept saying, oh, this is not it. This is not it. This is not it. Searching and searching. But finally, by learning to practice, had the experience where I was with my divine mother and my being, I had that experience face to face. And that gives us more faith. But the same feeling, that longing that we have to know, that's from our being. The problem is we don't understand or we don't, usually it's obscured by our mind. So somebody else calls us in quietudes, in the great rebellion. So he says, those people who would stop and listen for an instant when looking at a storefront window, contemplating dresses or, or cars or whatever they're so fascinated with, and would listen to the inquietudes of their heart, they would eventually be masters. Because it's that longing which pushes us from beginning to end. If we don't have that, we're lost. Because anyone who comes to classes like this, it's because we want to, our being is pushing. We want to know. And the way that we access that is through practicing and cooperating and feeding that longing to know. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, in the beginning, yeah, we, we, we're lost. We're, even if we have experiences, so the mind is there. We struggle to know divinity more and more. But what we need to do is follow that longing and that intuition that makes us want to study and learn and to deepen that through practice. And then the experience will come where we are face-to-face with the origin of those impulses or the origin of those inquietudes so we can uh, continue to be inspired. But uh, with patience, possessing your souls, Jesus taught us. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.